Hi, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. In early April, we sat down with two leaders of the McKinsey Global Institute to discuss their perspectives on how the long-term structural trends driving global disruption are now intersecting with the current economic and health crisis. Jonathan Wetzel is a senior partner and director of the McKinsey Global Institute. He joined us from his home in the Los Angeles area. Susan Lund is a partner and leads MGI's research on global financial markets, trade, labor markets, and the macroeconomic outlook. She joined us from her home in Washington, D.C. The following discussion took place during our 2020 Global Business Leaders Forum, which we held online this year. I moderated the discussion with Susan and Jonathan and shared questions from our participants. Susan opened our session by quantifying the global economic and public health impact of the COVID crisis. She emphasized the importance of companies continuing to take a long-term view by capitalizing on structural trends and investing in the next normal that is already beginning to emerge beyond the current crisis. We hope you find these insights useful. Now, over to Susan. Thank you all for joining under these strange and strange circumstances. First, it's no secret, we're living in a time of deep uncertainty. But a lot of that uncertainty actually began even before COVID. Some of the long-term structural trends include both opportunities as well as other challenges beyond the COVID crisis. And then we're going to talk about the mindsets that leaders are going to need to embrace, engage, and explore the disruptive changes around us. One of the things that we've all realized about a month ago was that we're facing not only a public health crisis, we're facing an economic disruption larger than anything any of us have lived through. In the U.S., we're looking at 10x the magnitude of disruption that we saw in the last crisis we all lived through. So we've done work to try to bound the uncertainty around what the economic impact could be. We worked with Oxford Economics to put some numbers behind the best case of controlling the virus quickly and mitigating some of, but not all of the economic damage, but still having a pretty strong recovery. Certainly China's, you know, ahead of the cycle. They hit their downturn in the first quarter. U.S. and Europe are due for the second quarter downturn. But the level of the drop is just unprecedented. So levels of GDP during COVID could drop between 8% to 13%. You have to go back to World War II in the 1940s or the early 1930s to find a drop in the level of GDP of this magnitude. But COVID is not the only uncertainty that we're dealing with. So as we manage through the crisis, I think it's imperative that companies continue to look long-term and think about investing in the future because this crisis, this pandemic will end. It will be brought under control sooner or later. We will eventually have treatments, widespread testing, and a vaccine. And past research that we've done has found that companies that invest through the cycle in a downturn are able to come out stronger on the other side and actually gain market share. So as You try to pry your eyes from the daily case count and start looking long-term. Some trends will shape the next normal. First is technology and the race to automate. This is nothing new, but this revolution, we believe, will probably be accelerated by the pandemic. Companies are scrambling to use technology as a backstop measure. I used to spend my days talking about AI automation in the future of work. 
But the fact is, even though it's a hot topic, companies have only barely begun to tap the potential. Overall, research by MGI suggests that there's a $13 trillion opportunity of value into potential global GDP if companies adopt these technologies faster. And I'm hearing a lot in companies accelerating the move to automate and digitize and create different ways of interacting with their customers. But the new technology is not only a huge opportunity for productivity and efficiency, it's also leading to massive workforce disruptions. Research that we've done has looked at the extent to which technology can replace the activities that people do in 800 different occupations. And one of the interesting findings is that there are very few jobs that can actually be entirely automated. Jobs that have 90 to 100 percent of the tasks that can be automated include things like sewing machine operators or data entry. On the other side of the spectrum, we see the jobs and roles where very little can be automated. But most jobs are somewhere in the middle. What it says is that when we think about the future of work and technology disrupting the workforce, it's not only that some people will lose their jobs, although they will and need to be redeployed, but work is going to change for everyone. And this is a huge challenge for companies to think about upskilling and reskilling the large majority of their workforce. We've talked about lifelong learning for a long time, but I think that in the next decade, this is going to be critical. And companies that are making early moves may be creating a competitive advantage for themselves. We also see new consumers around the world. The next wave of consumption and the next markets to tap are not in the U.S. and Europe. They are in emerging markets. And these consumers are entering with different tastes, different income levels, and a different perspective. The consuming class, earning more than $10 per day on a purchasing power parity basis, they have money after they pay for necessities like food and housing to have discretionary spending. If you go back to 1900, almost nobody on the planet Earth met this standard. Today, it's still only 41% of people on Earth fit this criteria. But as you fast forward over the next 10 years, the majority of the world's population is going to fall in this category. We're going to see an additional 2.7 billion new consumers by 2030. And indeed, when you look at where global consumption growth is coming from, just over half, 51%, is going to come from countries that we once called emerging markets. So these are the pools of growth that we're going to have to look at, especially for companies in the Western world, tapping into and understanding these new consumers is going to be an imperative. Now, these new consumers not only disproportionately live in Southeast Asia, Africa, Middle East, Latin America. These countries also have a huge opportunity to continue to integrate into the global economy. Today, China, to some degree Russia, Europe, and the U.S. still really dominate integration into the global economy. So after 25 years of talking about the rise of emerging markets, Africa and Latin America and parts of Southeast Asia, they're relatively not integrated. And there's big opportunities, frankly, for them to trade with each other, to create economies of scale. In Latin America, and Africa, they have the lowest level of intra-regional trade. So they're not trading with their neighbors. Doing that and integrating those blocks could unleash huge productivity gains. Susan, we've actually had a couple of questions come in related to globalization. What, if any, effects are you seeing or do you anticipate COVID having on that trend? As it happened, I launched a team in conjunction with McKinsey's supply chain practice, looking at supply chain risk. And then, of course, COVID hit. 
And pandemics were on the list, but weren't even necessarily going to be a top priority. And of course, now it is. Companies across the board around the world are looking more at how they build resilience. Now, resilience can come in different ways. So resilience in supply chains can be built in by holding more inventory, by having more redundancy in your network, by even building more transparency, not in just tier one suppliers, but who are their suppliers in tier two and tier three and so on. And digital technology obviously helps with the supply chain transparency. It's too early to say that companies are going to grab all their operations and bring them back home because there are different ways to build resiliency. But I do think that this understanding that we live in a world where what we used to call once-in-a-lifetime shocks now seem to happen every year or so in one form or another, whether it's a financial crisis, a pandemic, a massive hurricane. I think there will be a shift towards building resiliency. Now, what that means for the global network of supply chains, I think, is less clear. I've heard many times in the past weeks in the various executive roundtables I've been part of, companies saying, well, our operations, say, in country X went down, say, India or the Philippines. And we've quickly done workarounds to keep the business up and running, using digital technology, automation, bringing some of it back home. When all is said and done, why would we ever put it back there? That tends to be in more service, back office type industries. But I think coming out of the crisis, it's something we are keeping our eye on. And certainly the way we traditionally measure globalization through trading goods may continue to decline. I think a different perspective on globalization, though, is really the flow of information, not necessarily goods or even people. The interconnectivity around the world has made the flow of data even larger. So that will continue to grow quite rapidly. Thanks, Susan. Third trend is as a result of the combination of technology and globalization, we're seeing winner-take-all effects or superstar effects in terms of companies, in terms of cities, in terms of sectors. And within every industry, you can see that a disproportionate share of the economic profits are going to a very small percentage of the firms at the top of the heap, and others are destroying values. And we see this effect getting stronger and stronger. Back in the 90s, economic profit earned by the top decile of firms versus the amount of economic value destroyed by the bottom decile of firms. There was already a stark difference. Zoom forward to the most recent set of years, 2016 to 18, and you see that that gap has widened. The top companies are earning even more of the economic profits available And the bottom performers are destroying even more. We find that 80% of the economic profit pool comes from just 10% of the top performing companies. And this is true not only when you look broadly across economies at firms from all industries. It's also true when you look within an industry. You will find even in very highly profitable industries like media and pharmaceuticals, the same type of power curve. Now, it's not just about scale. The message is not go out and buy up other companies, although recessions tend to be a time of big consolidation. It's also about what kind of unique advantages do you have, unique product insights, R&D capabilities, and so on, to end up at the top end of that curve. As a result of this superstar effect, it's harder and harder to stay at the top. The average tenure of companies in the S&P 500 used to be 90 years. Today, we're looking at more like 15 years. That means that the entire S&P 500 will be replaced every 10 years. 
So even once you get to the top of that power curve, the new competitive dynamics in the global economy, in large part due to technology and globalization, make it harder to stay than ever before. The superstar effect doesn't apply only to companies. We find it also in cities and economic areas in Europe and in the U.S. We've looked at very granular local economies. And what you can see is that economic growth and job creation is really clustered in a relatively small set of areas. And we think automation may accelerate it, high growth hubs, the places you would expect, Los Angeles, New York, Seattle, Austin, Charlotte, and may account for 60% of net job growth in the next decade. And in Europe, it's even more striking, 48 metro areas that include Munich, Paris, London, Barcelona, et cetera, will account for 55% of job growth, but those places account for only 20% of the European population. In the U.S., those 25 cities account for about 43% of the population. So we see already that opportunity is agglomerating. Now, I think it'll be interesting as we look forward to the next normal um, if some of this taste for living in the largest metropolitan areas that are expensive and congested and now, as we understand, more susceptible to pandemics, if some of that will change and people will choose to try to work remotely. But at least what we've seen over the last 10 years is superstar cities springing up and vast parts of countries that don't fit that criteria are falling behind. There was one question that came in relative to that urban concentration. You mentioned some potential mitigating factors. Did you look at all at what might have been preventing rural areas from picking up some of that job growth? For example, connectivity, willingness to invest. Were there any factors that may now be changing just as some companies may be rethinking supply chain, some state governments might be rethinking where they're investing their infrastructure dollars? Yeah. So it could change, but after the last recession, so jobs were lost across the U.S. and across Europe. These rural areas and smaller towns really had an L-shaped recession. So they lost jobs and employment never came back. Their workforce is on average less educated, older. So it's complex. It's not as simple as, well, if we give them broadband, these places will thrive. I think that the takeaway from our research would say, Cities can turn themselves around. We did profiles of Duluth, Minnesota, Akron, Ohio, and Reno, Nevada, which have three very different stories, but they're cities that dramatically changed their dynamism and vibrancy and growth, but it took a concerted strategy. So one of the things as we go through this big economic shock is to think without concerted action on the part of business or state leaders, we might see similar hollowing out of communities. Maybe I could just pick up on that as an urbanist by background. I think it is a very long run trend in the sense that cities have continually been getting bigger and bigger over the thousands of years of human history, including many other pandemics. As Susan says, cities can be turned around But the secular trend is to agglomerations, to clusters being formed because of the sharing capacity of a city. Simply put, a city that's better networked, that has more neighbors, can better invest in its security and convenience and its job creation. So it's more resilient in turn to shocks. Unfortunately, a small city with few neighbors, it's all on you. And that makes it a lot more 
risky for that city. So I actually feel like this will, if anything, accelerate that trend to concentration. Let's talk about the next trend, which is climate. In some ways, COVID may represent an acceleration of a set of exogenous shocks that will ripple through what we assume to be a stable system. There is, first of all, a dramatic change in the level of risk that we see in the external environment. The 115 years of North American summers, for much of that period, a two-standard deviation day was a relatively rare event, less than 0.2% of the days. But in the last five years, 2011-2015, that relatively infrequent event has become a very frequent event, 15% of the time, or a 75 times increase in risk in the course of 50 years. That's symptomatic of a aggressive change in our environment. And with that aggressive change, we will be subject to higher levels of vulnerability and impact. Those are one example of the increased level of volatility in the environment. We could point to other symptoms as well. The number of three sigma days on Wall Street, volatility in energy prices, all of which are giving credence to the new context of increased levels of risk in our hitherto assumed to be stable environment. We think we are at the decisive decade from two aspects. One is that we are now in the time where we will see the impacts of climate change, or we have been seeing them. We have done the research around the hazards, the fires, the floods, the droughts, and the systems, our agriculture, our cities, our natural capital, and how these things interact. And what we see is a measurable, statistically significant, non-linear, non-stationary risk. And it's locked in in the sense that for the next 10 years, there will be growth in temperatures, rising temperatures, translating into rising levels of physical risk. That's regardless of any action we might take to mitigate that growth via carbon reductions. The carbon outlook is essentially what might we do today to affect the year 2050 or beyond. So we have a decisive decade from two sides. One is the Decisions need to be made as to how we will adapt over the next 10 years to the things that are locked in, and other decisions need to be made as to what we want to do to mitigate risk for the future in the next 20 years. Now, the good news, perhaps, is that the second set of decisions is actually an investment conversation. There is a tremendous amount of potentially value-creating investment in these actions that we would take to mitigate that risk, whether it's developing carbon sinks, rethinking our food systems, building the infrastructure to electrify our transport, modernizing the grid. All of these things can translate into tremendous opportunities essentially to redeploy capital. Now, against that, of course, there is the legacy of sunk capital and the unemployment and regional effects that entails. It is a 3 to $5 trillion capital investment opportunity. We then need to figure out how value-creating could it be and what happens to the folks who are not getting that capital. One of the things that we haven't yet seen, but we may see it coming in pandemic, is the nonlinear financial risk. And we see that in Florida, for example, with climate risk. 
where today we have a valuation based on historical flooding patterns of real estate. And of course, real estate matters to Florida because the state doesn't have income tax. So it's basically dependent on the value of this property to continue to sustain the state's revenue mix. We expect that there will be a lot more flooding on a lot more repetitive basis. We could wind up with a 15 to 35% devaluation of homes in affected counties due to flooding by 2050. There is a nonlinear financial component because those homes have in turn been secured by mortgages, which will presumably lose value, which also go to pay for property taxes, which allow for investments in those areas for job creation. So there's a knock-on effect. And that knock-on effect is just starting to be felt across counties in the United States and elsewhere, but will also presumably come in as we think about the financial risks associated with the pandemic. Jonathan, one question that came in, are you seeing things changing in terms of the public's desire to support individuals living on coast, whether or not it really does make sense to rebuild right by the ocean? There is definitely a social context to this. First of all, countries vary a lot in how much they're willing to fund rebuilding. And states vary to some extent as well. I think flood insurance authorities are uh, undercapitalized and have to be recapitalized. In Virginia, you can rebuild for as long as you want. That, that I think, is a question of how much insurance do we want to carry and who pays for that? Because it's clearly a transfer from the people who are not getting flooded to the people who are getting flooded and choosing to rebuild. As a general matter, we would say the world is underinsured. And those who are insured may be in for a shock as the insurance models incorporate climate risk. In as much as insurance is generally priced on a year-by-year basis, that will result in both rising premiums and perhaps the unavailability of that insurance in general, which is the case in fire hazard areas, for example, right now. So I would move to the fifth trend, which is arguably the biggest challenge for particularly OECD economies. And this is the rethinking and potentially repairing of the social contract. What we have seen is over the last 20 years, stagnation on the income side and increases in costs on the other side. Across all OECD countries, the median household income has risen about 0.4%. And we choose median because we don't live in a world of averages. In fact, average income has gone up, but that's a function of inequality of income. We would note that median wealth has, in fact, declined in most of these countries. On the cost side, for the average households, half to 100% of any income gain has been absorbed by three big buckets of cost, housing, health care, and education. And that's, again, largely an OECD-developed economy challenge. When the average small business owner has 27 days of cash, there isn't a lot of room for savings and for wealth accumulation. The the system that we have is running in many ways on a knife edge for most people, which then precipitates this urgent need for a solution right now. It's very challenging to continue to run that system with this little cushion. We may, as a result, see innovations around savings, 
around cost management, around sharing on the cost side, that would reduce that level of instability. We think this adds up to the potential and maybe the likelihood for structural change because these trends are not short-term trends. These trends have been going on for decades. And uh, as a result, people who have been on the short end of these trends have, in general, lost a lot of confidence in the institutions that have sustained them in China and India. There's, of course, a different feeling. So as we are thinking about our response to this pandemic and the structural changes that are going forward, there is perhaps more potential structural development possible in the more mature economies than in the developing ones. So what do we do? How do we work together to get ahead of these changes? Our frame on this is what we call the 21st century company. And the 21st century company, to put it simply, is the company that faces and resolves 21st century problems. And this is a 21st century problem. Our pandemic is the consequence of these underlying trends. Without globalization and the rise of trade, without the rise of Asia and urbanization, we clearly wouldn't have this pandemic. So how do we address that? Given that those are, again, our very long-term trends, what we would argue is that 21st century companies don't shy from the challenge, that they look at those trends and they engage, that they embrace the opportunity and that they explore how they might respond in new and different ways. We came through a Great Depression. We came through the World War. We came through the financial crisis. Prosperity continued, but it didn't happen by accident. It happened as the consequence of structural change that addressed gaps that were highlighted by the crisis, that the underlying principles of our welfare system at the time or our labor protection or our agriculture or financial system required structural change. But once that was enacted, as Milton Friedman said, once the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable, then we were able to reset. We were able to go forward in that next normal. Leaders recognize the challenge. They don't shy from it. They know that structural change is coming and they get ahead of it embrace the need for change in terms of risk and growth, engage across the boundaries. We always, in a stable environment, like to focus on our homes, how to keep our homes tidy. This is a messy moment where we will have to go beyond the boundary to our customers and to our employees, but as importantly to society as a whole, and to collaborate with those public and social partners, for example, which will help us resolve this systemic crisis. Finally, to explore, explore the new sources of growth, the ways we haven't solved this problem before because it was politically impossible. Now it's less so. Embedding that innovation gene in the DNA and being optimistic is a characteristic of those resilient companies that see their way through moments of structural change. Embracing it, becoming the leader, embedding that within the brand. Engagement is interesting because clearly we are seeing companies on the front lines, whether it's sharing their data and their broadband, providing those 
rent moratoriums and financing for small landlords, repurposing their factories, saying we're going to recognize that this is an investment, but one which we do gladly in the interests of stabilizing our system. Some of these opportunities are quite fascinating. For example, in Australia, Qantas is working together with Woolworths to handle the tens of thousands of layoffs by resettling them, if you will, at Woolworths, the grocer. Highly trained service personnel moving from an airline to a retailer, not your business as usual. That's thinking beyond the corporate boundaries. There are important long-term social problems, such as housing, which might be a real focus here. It's very hard to shelter in home when you don't have a home. So even problems that are for the long term, by crossing the boundaries, there can be meaningful progress at this moment of a crisis. Jonathan, Susan, thank you so much for taking the time today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Strategy Room. A transcript of this discussion will be available on the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page on McKinsey.com, where you may also find links to our previous episodes. McKinsey's latest insights on the COVID crisis are also available at McKinsey.com slash coronavirus. If you'd like to receive our latest insights, please email us at strategycfo.com underscore practice at mckinsey.com. Follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to having you join us again soon for our next episode of Inside the Strategy Room.